Welcome to the Filling the Pale podcast. My name is Greg Ashman, and in this episode, I'm uh, very fortunate to have with me uh, Professor Dan Willingham. So, uh, Dan, welcome. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. Thank you for thank you for um, for coming on the podcast. Now, I suppose one thing I ought to ask at the moment, um, with the the current situation with COVID and all that, how how are things going where you are? You're in Virginia, is that right? That's that's right. Yeah, thing, things are going poorly here. I'm afraid, as they are going through most of the U.S. except bit, bits of the Northeast. Um, we're having a lot of trouble uh, with restraint here, and uh, so numbers are going up. It's not a good situation. Oh dear. Okay. Well, we're we're in trouble here. We we had a good we had a good go, and now um, we've had a bit of sort of community infection has taken hold in Melbourne. So they've locked down the whole of Melbourne and, and a what's called Mitchellshire, which is just outside Melbourne. And we're just waiting for it to hit Ballarat where I am. So mm. yeah, a little bit concerning times. Anyway, um, but hopefully we can, we, can, um, we can apply our um, collective skills and fix that at some point. And maybe there'll be a vaccine soon, hopefully. Um, now, you're a professor. What, what's, you're a professor of psychology. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. So you're not. You didn't necessarily start out uh, looking at education and education issues. So could you tell us a little bit about um, how and when and why you became interested in education? Oh my, sure. Um, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I I uh, went to graduate school, uh, got my PhD in sort of the intersection of cognitive psychology and neuroscience, and um, went into academia just being a, a professor, a, a, a researcher of memory, and uh, did nothing else for the first about 12 years of my career, with just did basic research in memory, and got interested in education completely by accident um, because of the fact that E.D. Hirsch lives in my town. Yeah. Uh, and he was had a lot of interest in cognitive psychology as it applies to education. So he asked to come talk to me, and I was perfectly happy to talk to him. Um, not, you know, I'll talk to anybody pretty much. Yeah. And so he came by and, and was asking me a bunch of questions about education. And I, of course, was saying I didn't know anything about it. But I said a few things about memory. Anyway, um, he found some of that interesting and asked me to uh, give a talk to the national um, organization that, that he founded, uh, the Core Knowledge Foundation. So it was mostly teachers. It was going to be an audience of about 500 teachers in Nashville, Tennessee. This was 2001, I think. Um, and I, I rashly agreed to do that. And then six months later, uh, when it was about time for me to give the talk, I suddenly realized, my gosh, why in the world did I say I would go talk to a bunch of teachers? I don't know anything about education at all. And I, I, in a panic, called him and he said, no, we, you know, don't worry about it. We get that. We know, we know you, you know, you're not, um, you're not a teacher and you don't study it. You know, we thought it'd be fun to have someone come talk about cognitive psychology. Um, so I, I sort of pulled slides out of uh, the, the course that I had been teaching by then already for years, uh, Introduction to Cognition to College Sophomores, that I somehow thought would kind of relate to education in some way, but I, I felt really ashamed and silly giving this talk because I thought, what in the world can I tell teachers about the human mind that they don't already know? Uh, but I went and did my little song and dance, and um, to my considerable surprise and, um, and pleasure, it, uh, 
the teachers didn't know a lot of it. And in fact, we're very interested. And in the audience was uh, the uh, editor of American Educator Magazine, which is a teacher's magazine that goes out to all the members of one of the two big teachers unions here in the States. Uh, and she said, that was really kind of fun and interesting. Like maybe you would like to do some writing for us. And I said, well, maybe I would. And, and so that was how Ask the Cognitive Scientist started in American Educator Magazine, which I've been writing since 2002. Um, and the more I worked on it, the more interested it being the, the larger issue of how to think about ways of applying cognitive psychology to education. Um, I got more and more interested. And um, the big watershed came in 2007. That was when I decided to just stop doing the basic memory research altogether and just focus on on uh, applications uh, to education. Sorry, that was a really long answer to no, a very no. brief question, but that was, uh, but, but in my defense, you asked. So. No, it's, it's fascinating. It's quite insightful because I think people do assume a lot about teacher professional knowledge um, that we would know a lot about um, cognition, a lot about psychology. And frankly, uh, we don't. I, I, and I can say that with some confidence. I know that I haven't gone and conducted a survey of all the teachers ever and or or reviewed every curricula for every ed, ed school but I've talked to enough teachers from enough uh, parts well generally Australia the UK and the US and and we're yes. not really taught that stuff we're taught um, stage theory uh, um, Piaget stage theory we're taught Vygotsky but not even a great deal of that um, and uh, and then we're taught these uh, sort of practical approaches I suppose that uh, I've now come to consider to be quite misconceived in many ways um, and th that story is echoed by lots of people and I think that um, for, for me um, it was quite revelatory discovering your as the cognitive scientist stuff it was about the same time I moved to Australia uh, I was on a path to be a principal in the UK uh, never I'd sort of dipped my toe in research a little bit. Occasionally we had stuff that was um, sent via the government through this thing called the National Strategies. And, but that was all I'd really encountered, like the stuff that, uh, that was being sent to me. Um, and I came to my current school and we had a, it had a, an interesting research and I started reading Hattie. Uh, I'm, I'm now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Hattie's work, but it's uh, the uh, I'm, now, I'm now a little bit skeptical about the, the methodology that he uses to rank different effect sizes. But from there, I, I found a, um, a reference to Kirshner-Sweller-Clark's Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Doesn't Work paper. And at the same time, I was um, looking at Aston Cognitive Scientist. I hadn't yet got hold of um, Why Don't Students Like School, but um, we'll get to that in a second. I hadn't quite got hold of that at that point because this was about 2011. Um, and, I, and it was, it's, it's hard to um, undersell really quite what a revelatory experience that was to start to realize that pretty much everything you'd been told was the science or, or aligned with research um, probably didn't. And actually the, there were um, different ways of thinking about things and the science supported some of those different ways and in fact some of the things uh, that we've been told were were really good practice probably weren't and then at that point I got 
quite angry because I thought, well, this isn't fair um, that we don't know this stuff. And then I started blogging and trying to sort of let other people know about it. Sorry, I'm rambling in response to that. But, but it's interesting that you would think talking to a group of teachers that, that they would know this stuff. Um, but it is a, it's an extraordinary profession. We've got a lot of what I would call craft knowledge about how to, um, you develop it as well. A lot of it isn't taught, um, like how to deal with troublesome situations. We can see things, you know, in the corner of the room without um, uh, having to be really conscious of that. But um, the stuff about cognition, it's, it, it, it it's really is quite new to a lot of teachers. So I'll tell you something interesting, Greg. I, um, I, I would take an issue with a little bit of what you said, which is that teachers don't, uh, aren't exposed to this content. I think they are. Yeah. Um, at least, at least in the States, I think they are. So I looked into this, I wrote an article in 2017 about teacher education, arguing for a way that not teacher education broadly, but a way that edu the teaching of educational psychology ought to change. Yeah. And so I looked at a lot of the existing literature on, on what teachers know. And I, I agree with you. I don't think there's a whole lot that's known, like really systematically big nationally representative sample where you find out what do teachers know about developmental psychology and learning science and so on. But what there is, is not encouraging. That said, I think they are exposed to this content um, because if you look at the licensing exams in the US, that content is in the licensing exams. It's, it's in textbooks as well I, and it's on syllabi. I, I don't get that worked up about that metric, whether it's in the textbook, whether yeah. it's on the syllabus, because yeah. you don't really know what's happening in the classroom. But if it's, if it's on the licensing exam, then you can be pretty confident. Teachers, one way or another, are, have to learn this content in yeah. order to get licensed. So what I argued in these papers is I think, I think they are learning it for the licensing exam, but it's a little bit like what we always complain about with our students. I think they're cramming yeah. so that they can pass the licensing exam, and then they kind of move on. Because then going back to the textbooks, if you look at, um, to the extent that they maybe are following the textbook, um, what your or professors are following the textbook. The content is in there, but it's in there with lots of other stuff. Yeah. And I think this content kind of gets lost in the shuffle. And I also think it's presented in a way that is not of extremely high utility. Um, the bumper sticker way of putting it that, that I've offered is that when you take educational psychology as a future teacher, you're not taught ed psych as a future teacher, you're taught it as if you're gonna be a future researcher. Yeah. Which I think in a way kind of makes sense because I think a lot of the people who are teaching those courses are themselves researchers and they probably were in the classroom a while back, but now they really, that's their self image is as a researcher. So looking at the ed psych textbook, it makes sense to them. It's like, well, we have to present the field. You don't need the field. If you're a teacher, you need to know what to, because there are lots of fields you need to know. It's not just cognitive psychology. You also want to know social psychology and you want to know labor economics and you want to yeah. know sociology. There are all these disciplines that you, what you really want if you're a teacher, I think, is give me the, you know, right on the back of an envelope, the five things that are really important for me to know as a teacher, they're going to make me better in the classroom. I don't want to know your field. I need to know my own field. 
I think that point about how it's presented is important. Like I interview a lot of um, graduate, we call them graduate teachers here, new teachers um, into the profession. Um, I wouldn't say a lot, but I, I, you know, a few every year. And they, they've definitely heard of um, things like explicit instruction, but they know it's bad. Um, And they know that they're supposed to be doing something else. And, and the big push are things like, um, differentiation like um mm-hmm. but uh, uh, which i'm not uh, it, it's one of these that word is one of these really confusing words because um i'm not uh, i think all teachers differentiate to a certain extent um and to not do so would be awful however i'm not sure what people mean by it it can mean opposite things and i think sometimes it's a word that's used to sort of fill in a gap and you can look very wise and so oh, we've got to do more differentiation. But but we're not like um, the thing that I always say about differentiation. If you've got a kid who uh, is struggling to write uh, and you say, OK, well, you can make um, a video recording instead. That's differentiation. And if you say, OK, we're going to give you an intensive writing intervention. That's differentiation. But those two things are opposite to each other. Mm-hmm. One's a accommodation. One's a, uh, an intervention. Um, so. I think we need to be more specific about it. Sorry, I'm going off on one. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I just I want to I want to not only agree with you. I want to take it farther. I think yeah. this is very common in the way in some of the topics we get most exercised about. It's it's a it's a category error. It, the term doesn't mean anything. It's like talking about technology. Yeah. Technology means damn near anything, right? You yeah. really need to talk about what specifically. Um, you're, you know, being pro-tech or anti-tech doesn't make any sense, just like differentiation. And as you say, really, it's almost impossible to be anti-differentiation at some level, for goodness sakes. I mean, of course, you're going to treat children in your, in your classroom differently. They're, you know, that's just a, that's human nature. So, <laughs> But know, it that, leads to people talking past each other. And it, it's, um, I was going to ask you about this, but it's sort of related, uh, just in, the, in a kind of semantic sense, critical thinking. So, I think it's hard to communicate like there are two there are sort of two positions people take on critical thinking that are both um, flawed like you can say as we do it's imply through our curriculum in Australia the Australian curriculum um, talks about um, critical thinking being a a general capability so some sort of generic skill Uh, and I don't believe that it's that but I also don't think that there is no such thing as critical thinking um, that there's and, and trying to s- map the middle ground between the two that it's this uh, as mainly from reading you my understanding is that it's really important but it's largely domain specific um, that's quite a difficult thing to communicate because the two extremes oh don't bother with it there's no such thing or um, we can teach it as this you know, we're just going to practice our critical thinking all the time those two things are quite easy to grasp but mm-hmm. the complexity of what it probably really is is a little bit harder. I, I don't know. Would would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think I would. I think I would agree with that. Um, and I, a year ago, I guess it was, I wrote a report for for uh, the government of New South Wales on critical thinking when I uh, exactly tried to sort of draw out some of what you're some of what you're talking about, um, how to think about it as domain specific, but then also how to think about it as domain general. And the, the main conclusion I, I drew was that it's, it's much easier to pin down when you think about it in domain-specific terms. If you say, what does critical thinking for history mean? 
um, one would expect that you know, expert teachers could sit down and say, by the end of grade 12, here's the kinds of things it would be reasonable to expect students to do. And you could make it quite specific and then build up, you know, back map from that to think about what the skills are. I think domain general, as, as you said, I think, I think um, the data indicate those sorts of skills almost certainly exist, but we can't agree on what they are. Yeah. So thinking about, and the other thing we know in very practical terms is when we try to train for them without defining what they are, we just try and get people to do lots of critical thinking. Yeah. We don't find any effects. Yeah. So in terms of like the, if you're a researcher, you know, you can take your pick about what you want to study. If you're really ambitious, I wouldn't tell one of my PhD students to do it, but if you're really ambitious, you could try and figure out what domain general critical thinking processes are. But if you're not a researcher and you're just interested in getting kids to be um, really good critical thinkers, you'll go more the domain specific route. And you, you'll also figure whatever the heck domain general is, they'll pick that up along the way just by virtue of being in school longer for which there seems to be pretty good data, even though you, we don't know what it is. Yeah, are you familiar with the um, Andre Tricot John Sweller paper on this? Um, no. So John Sweller is, I don't know whether you know, he's, he's one of my PhD oh, sure. supervisors. Yeah, yeah. Yes, um, yes. And they've got this paper, um, I forget the name of it. Oh. Uh, anyway, but what they argue, they argue, so obviously problem solving, again, these things, what, what, like is problem solving a subset of critical thinking? I tend to think it is. I tend to think these processes are semantically similar. But anyway, so they're talking about problem solving. And they talk, they say, look, there is a domain general aspect of problem solving. It's means end analysis. But no one needs to be taught means ends analysis. It's what we do. It's, it's sort of, bio, well, they, they draw on David Geary's theory of biologically and bio, biologically primary and biologically secondary. So biologically primary are things that we sort of have evolved to learn to do. And biologically secondary are things that are culturally recent, uh, evolutionarily recent, I should say. Um, but anyway, they argue that uh, means end analysis is something that we've, um, essentially evolved to do so there's no point teaching students that although it is a domain general problem solving skill but what we can teach them is you know how to solve algebra problems or how to solve the problem of a block drain or how to solve the, the problem of, yeah. of of which source is the most reliable in this uh, historical context so it, it's a similar argument that's all that's why i just put it in there mm -hmm. um so um for many teachers, as I said earlier, and, and people say this to me, like when, when they get in touch, they have those pivotal moments, a bit like I did. And for one of them, uh, one of them for many teachers is reading um, Why Don't Students uh, Like School? Um, now, you mentioned that um, it was partly, uh, it, it arose out of your column for um, American Educator, um, the Ask the Cognitive Scientist column. And it's, it reads a bit like that, doesn't it? Because it's got the question at the start of each chapter and the, the short answer and That's then right. the long yeah. answer. Um, and I understand you're currently working on a new edition of, of that. Uh, can you explain um, the thinking behind the original book, the new edition, what you might have added or changed or, or, or that sort of process? Sure. So the, the original book actually, again, came up in a conversation with Edie Hirsch. Um, so he's really looming large in this conversation. Um, uh, 
And it, it happened, he and I were taught, and as I mentioned before, he was very enamored of cognitive psychology. And I was always sort of trying to put the brakes on a little bit and talking with him about it. And I said, you know, I think we have some limited things to say about certain as some certain aspects of education. Uh, but, you know, let's not oversell. Um, and he was going on and rhapsodizing. And I finally said, Don, I could write down on half a sheet of paper everything a teacher knows, needs to know, uh, that's a conclusion from cognitive psychology. And that did bring him up short. And he said, well, I'd like to see that half sheet of paper. Yeah. And so that was where I thought I, uh, it would be useful to sort of come up with these limited set of principles that are non-obvious, have non-obvious implications something you can and and actually do have implications something you can actually do in the classroom so that was that was the genesis of the book and i was uh, brash enough in 2009 to say that i didn't expect that any of those um conclusions would be overturned that we're, we're you know i won't be writing in five years time uh oh sorry you know we thought that in 2009 now in 2014 we know that that's not true so in looking at the second edition, I was a little uh, anxious <laughs> as to whether or not that was going to be true. Um, it largely is, is true. Um, in fact, I think the, the area that has been most active is the intelligence chapter, uh, because there's been a lot of work on genetic versus uh, environmental contributions to intelligence and how to think about that, uh, because there have been new techniques. Uh, and then also within the intelligence chapter, there's been a great deal of work on mindset interventions. Um, and I think that what I, um, what I claimed in that chapter has held up pretty well. I think in terms of the uh, genetic component of intelligence, I, I definitely came down on the side of people have overestimated the genetic, um, uh, the genetic component. And I think the, recent data have indicated that 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 conclusion is probably a little stronger than I made it in 2009. So that that chapter has changed significantly. And then the other uh, chapter, uh, sorry, not the other chapter, but I've, I've added a new chapter that is uh, on technology. What I just said, like technology yeah. is too broad a category, but nevertheless, yeah. I wrote a chapter, technology and education. And it was very difficult to write for exactly that reason. So um, on mindset, what's your, so you said you, you, the, the chapter on intelligence looked at things like mindset. What's your yeah. take on mindset interventions now? Yeah, I think, I think the, the, the story is actually fairly clear. Um, so I think when you do things in the laboratory, um, the sort of general theory has held up fairly well. When you try and do interventions, what, uh, uh, again, the picture is quite clear. I tweeted about it this morning. The clear picture that has emerged is that we don't know how to do in-school or in-classroom interventions in a way that consistently works. Um, when you look, I mean, there was a meta-analysis a few years ago, and it looked like there was a very small positive effect size. And then when you look in detail at the individual studies, you see most of the interventions didn't work, and a, a few of them, see, you seem to see a fairly substantial effect. Um, but the other type of intervention you can do other than an in-class or in-school intervention is an online intervention. 
And this has really been spearheaded by David Yeager. Um, and he put an enormous amount of effort into doing these online modules. Uh, and this is the paper I'm, uh, you're probably familiar with. It came out in Nature uh, just last year. Um, and a, a really Im impressive effort. They, and I think they, the, it was based on the original paper came out, I think in 2016. So they, they pilot tested these modules and they had focus groups with the students and so on. Um, and a couple of things I think are important. One is these materials are extremely uh, carefully put together. The second thing is the timing matters. Um, so they, um, the interventions seem to work best when kids are most vulnerable. So when kids are going into high school, that's a time when, you know, they can sort of doubt themselves and they're, uh, uh, you're more likely to see a successful intervention. Um, the other aspect of that study that I really like was they knew that they, um, there had been this, these criticisms that the positive effects keep coming from Carol Dweck and Carol Dweck's students. Yeah. And so they did a number of things to try and keep themselves as researchers at arm's length. So they hired a third party to recruit the schools, to clean the data, to analyze the data and so on, so that they, uh, that, that would seem a little bit more legit. Uh, and that Nature paper came out in 2019, and then uh, uh, a group of researchers in Norway saw the preprint of it, contacted Jaeger, and said, we want to replicate this in Norway. So they did it in Norway, again, with a very um, large sample of schools, and they got effects that are fairly comparable. Now, the effects are really small. I mean, yeah. I, I can't remember what the effect size is, 0.15 or something like that. But this is, to me, um, uh, uh, highlights something that I think we should be keeping in mind. If you have a small effect and you can get that small effect at very, very low cost, then why wouldn't you do it? Like if this were, if the effect of increasing the teaching force by 20%, which would be a stupendous cost, and yeah. then you get this small effect size, then clearly it's not worth it. But I think you have to balance cost versus benefit. Uh, so I don't think we should get too worked up about this. I mean, the other thing that Jaeger has actually um, emphasized in a couple of places is for a lot of kids, this isn't going to work because they've already got a growth mindset. Yeah. And the, the OECD did a very, like a very brief uh, probe of all the students who they tested in PISA. Uh, they just, they gave them a, a, a statement that was something like, well, your intelligence is what it is and you can't do much about it. Do you yeah. agree or disagree? Right. You might, you might remember that. And what they found is there are a hell of a lot of kids in Britain. I can't remember the, what it is for Australia. There are a lot of kids and 15-year-olds in Britain and in the U.S. who say, no, that's not right. You can change your intelligence. Yeah. So you know mindset it, you know, is not going to work for them because they're, yeah. they're already good to go, right? So anyway, that's, that's uh, sorry, that was, again, a long answer. But no, I'm just it's good. This chapter. So um, to me, the, the data all are falling into place fairly neatly. Uh, and the next really big lift is going to be to figure out, well, and it may not, you may not even try this lift. It may not be worth it. Um, I was going to say, you know, how do you do this in schools? Uh, but it really may not be worth it to, to try doing it in schools. Well, a lot of schools have, and they put up some posters and they have an assembly, and I don't think it does much. Um, but I, I think there's a couple of really interesting things in what you just said there, which I would like to pick up on. First yeah. is on effect sizes. Uh, 
this idea that you can have a large, medium or small effect size, I, I don't think it is the standardized metric that people think it is. If you've got, you know, young kids learning to read, you can get really large effect sizes. If you narrow the population, uh, you can get large effect sizes because you're reducing the standard deviation. Uh, so if it, I think a fairly robust 0.15 effect size, it's similar to the, the one from um, a recent uh, formative assessment um, package that uh, Dylan William uh, I think was involved in and they did a big RCT of that. If it's relatively low cost and you're talking about older kids, um, yeah. then I, I think it, it's worth having this idea that we, and, and you get these large, you know, if you do a really poor study, you'll get a large effect size. Well, you know, I, I don't want to replicate the poor study. So I think we need to probably move away as a community from looking just at these they're useful um in a certain context i think you can compare some effect sizes if you're comparing similar interventions with similar outcomes with similar kids you know it's a standardized assessment it's this age group it's in um uh, reading or whatever it is although probably it's not going to work so well in reading but i think this idea and, and this was going back to what i was saying about hattie the idea you can rank all these things i, th I think it was a it was worth trying but i'm not sure it holds up um, the other thing that you said, which was a small point you made, was about the piloting of the program. And I think culturally in teaching, it's not necessarily something we do a lot of. And I've seen the power of it at my place. You teach the same program uh, year after year. You look to refine it. You look at evidence on which to refine it. You just don't just refine it on a whim. And that's similar to... Um, the sort of Engelman direct instruction programs that that's how they were developed and that's how they came up with their theory of instruction um, and unfortunately no one else wants to research them so if you look at the Diestar programs you look at a whole load of research by Engelman and his colleagues and then everyone else can say well it's it's by the researchers so we can write it up but again I think it's part of the effect of that is the the um, piloting the going over and over again and I think we need a a kind of um, professional view of that. In too many schools, we throw out the curriculum at the end of this year and say, okay, we're gonna do something else. You know, we're not gonna do the ancient Egyptians now. Uh, we're gonna do a different unit next year. We're gonna do, um, I don't know, medicine through time or whatever it is. And you start with a blank sheet of paper and every teacher starts with a blank sheet of paper and they just make it, make it up, you know, on, with the best of intentions and on the best of their craft knowledge, but we're not getting this flow through from one year to the next of these tiny little small effect size incremental improvements that over time can lead to large differences in the effectiveness of the program. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, and I think it's uh, the irony of course, is that this is not what we tell our students, right? We tell yeah. our students, you've got to learn from your mistakes. You need to use feedback and, and try and improve. And I would, uh, build on what you said, I think it's true not only in terms of curricula and, and smaller level lesson plans, it's true, and this, this may be different in the Australian context, but in the US is true of policy as well. So we had the No Child Left Behind, the Federal Education Act, it became clear it, it was a problem, it just wasn't, there were a number of aspects of that that did not work at all the way that they were intended, so it absolutely needed to end. But there was never, anybody who would say anything good came of it yeah all the you know all the all lessons out. we learned Sorry, are all, out, all gone. terrible yeah 
throw it all out. Exactly. And it became toxic to mention it. Yeah. And God help any politician who said, well, you know, there's one aspect of that that I think was kind of useful and maybe we ought to think about. Right. So, yeah, it's sort of endemic throughout the system. And I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's really a shame. Yeah. And I think we one of the kind of, dare I say, technologies that we need to develop in education is this technology of refinement of uh, what evidence we use, the inferences. It's not going to be scientific. It's going to sit somewhere between science and craft knowledge you know we're gonna we're gonna play the odds here this seemed to have been more effective than that we haven't done a randomized control trial but we're gonna we're gonna put put our money on this approach and we're gonna build that in next time and we're gonna drop that one off and and i don't think we have that in our in our practice at the moment and i think that's a technology we need to develop look um sorry i'm um uh rambling uh what was a yeah okay yes so i wanted to i wanted to ask you about this in your um 2015 book um raising kids who read um i think you were reasonably uh, you might disagree with this characterization feel free i think you're reasonably positive about um balanced literacy um because you you said um although you had some misgivings you said look in theory it should work however in a recent article on your website a version of which um was printed in nomanis magazine in australia uh, you appear a bit more skeptical about balanced literacy yeah. and you, you link yeah. it to the um, Emily Hanford um, articles as well in, in that context. So what is balanced literacy um, and can you describe if and how your, your views on that have changed? Yeah, and I think I, I think I, I don't know whether it was there or elsewhere, I specifically said in Raising Kids Who Read, I was too naive and and was too optimistic about balanced literacy so i mean I, and i still agree with the the basic uh, uh the basic stance if you look at the way balanced literacy was originally proposed it ought to work i mean it's it is it was meant to be sort of the best of what these two uh warring camps were saying and in fact, what in calmer moments, uh, and this is, I actually wrote a, a blog about this that um, uh, a number of people in Australia got really upset with me and I, and I see why, but I'll, I'll come back to that. So balanced literacy is supposed to be phonics, absolutely. You absolutely have to teach phonics, but phonics is not a literacy program. Phonics is a way to teach decoding. So in addition to phonics, you want there to be high quality children's literature. Children should have an opportunity to speak every day. Children should have an opportunity to listen every day. You know, you want this to be a broad literacy curriculum. So you want lots of different things, but absolutely you have to have phonics in there. So the concern was that this really was a, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing or whatever the right metaphor would be, that uh, there was really very little phonics happening in classrooms and that in, instead what you had was, you know, uh, people who were never interested in teaching phonics were now saying, okay, well, now I'm calling it balanced literacy, but I'm just doing what I always did. When I wrote Raising Kids Who Read, there was not, and in, in a way there still really isn't, high quality nationally representative data about what actually happens in American classrooms. Yeah. So you had people making these claims, people aren't teaching phonics. And I was sort of like, you know, that may be true, but like, you, you know, that's, that's your impression. I mean, that's not, we, we don't have data on this. And when I would talk with teachers, that wasn't really what I saw. I certainly never ran into a teacher who didn't claim that phonics was, 
important. So what Emily Hanford's reporting did was to, uh, so she sort of um, put more teeth into this idea. Uh, these, these teachers who say they're teaching phonics sincerely believe they are, but A, they're not spending very much time on it, and B, they're not necessarily doing it the optimal way because they're not very knowledgeable about it because yeah. they were never taught how to do it, right? Yeah. So I, based on her reporting, but not just on her reporting, based on other data that came out, and I mean, I said this a little bit, I mean, you know, in, yeah. in Raising Kids Who Read, I pointed out in the New York City curriculum, you've got 16 different activities. One of them is phonics and there's 15 other things. Like you could hardly blame a teacher if they thought, oh, well, you know, I'll do some of everything, right? And then there's yeah. very little, right? You get the idea. Um, so yeah, so that's my, that's my take on balanced literacy is that there, um, uh, I was less concerned in 2015 than I should have been. I should, the people who were sort of, um, again, the, the, I, I want to use the metaphor crying wolf, but that's wrong. The people who are, who are saying there's a problem, the yeah. house is on fire. Yeah. I think they were, I think there was more to that than, um, I thought there was a little something to it, but I now have concluded there was more to it. Um, I'll just circle back a, a little bit to talk about the Australian context. So uh, I don't I don't know what's happening in Australian education. I mean, I scarcely know what's happening in Virginia, much yeah. less the states, much less Australia. I slightly know what's happening nationally in the U.S. and even less in the U.K. and then still less in Australia. Anyway, so um, I said sort of breezily in a in a blog. I said, look, everybody agrees phonics is important. Everybody agrees literature is important. So it's really about the degree. And this is kind of silly. We're making other people's positions more extreme than it is and so on. And then I, so I published that blog yeah. and then I got some very angry and, and some kind of hurt also responses from Australia where people said, you have no idea what is going on here. Uh, and then I watched the, the phonics debate and I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, you're, you are absolutely right. I did not know. And I was extremely surprised to see people who are professors in schools of education seriously contending phonics instruction doesn't make any sense. You do not need to do this. I've, it's been a while since I've watched it. Yeah. So I, please don't think I'm quoting them directly. No. But that was the gist of it that I got. It, what's interesting about that, I think, very telling about that debate, the phonics debate, is um, that the the sides were supposed to be, um, I think it was systematic phonics versus phonics in context. Yeah. So, but the people arguing the phonics in context side, for all the world, look like they're arguing against phonics, like completely. And um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so you think, well, wait a bit. What? what's phonics in context and you get so you get these quite arcane discussions and and you have to try and figure out what's going on under the surface so um you have discussions about whether phonics teaching needs to be systematic or not the the, the famous um national panel uh, from 2000 in the us but one of the things i would say is australian education does tend to follow the us um, in many of these things. So quite a few of the uh, American programs like uh, Funtus and Pinnell, um, I'm not sure about Lucy Calkins, but those would be used in um, 
uh, Australian schools. So we sort of look to the US yeah. for our education research often and, all, and our education products. Uh, although obviously yeah, there's the product. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that, so there yeah. is that, but then um, we, um, so you have this, so the, the national reading panel report said, uh, came out in favor of systematic phonics. It didn't come out in favor of, um, of uh, synthetic phonics over analytic phonics. Um, yeah. And that is another yeah. discussion to have. Um, I, I think the evidence isn't as strong, but I think there's, 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 it's indicative, I think, that synthetics is perhaps superior, but I wouldn't go out there and try and make that, that case that that's definitive. But certainly a systematic program where you plan out in advance what grapheme phoneme correspondences you want to teach and in what order. Um, I think the evidence is very strong for that. And that's what the National Reading Panel says. Well, in Australia, you'll have people arguing against that. So, um, and ostensibly, that's what the the no the the phonics in context side of that debate was supposed to be arguing. They're supposed to be saying, "No, we can learn phonics in the context of reading what they would call real books." Um, it's it's very interesting. There's there's a point where one of the debaters really has a go at um, take, take, uh, making fun of a decodable book um, because um, decodable books will use a very limited number of grapheme phoneme relationships that the kids have learned. So you've got pat, um, sat, or, or yeah, and people make fun of it. But I know as a parent that my kids, um, my, my, my schools change a lot, but they were sent some of these what what are called predictable readers that are supposed to go with the um, the alternative program, which it's just like each page you go. Um, uh, uh, ja uh, Jamie picked up a ball, and you got Jamie holding a ball, and then you got Jamie picked up a mug, and then you got Jamie holding a mug, and so on. And they're equally absurd. Um, not none of these things are what you'd call real books that they're not the sort of the story time books that we sit and read with our children just before they're going to sleep at night they're all geared to some form of instruction or another and it's kind of sophistry to pretend that they're not but anyway um yeah so i think that there's a lot of obscuring going on so when when people say so to me now i don't like the term dog whistle because i do like to uh, assume that people say what they mean they say but when people are saying phonics in context having watched that debate and seen people arguing against phonics in, in its entirety, I have to wonder what they mean. And I have to wonder when they say, oh, of course, everyone teaches phonics and, you know, balanced literacy, of course, everyone's in well, favor no, of teaching. Greg, you, you, you found out during that debate what, what they think teaching phonics means. Yeah. It means if you've tried everything else, you can grudgingly yeah. provide a little bit of phonics instruction for that one word so that the child can keep going on and having their brilliant literary experience of Jamie holding his mug. Yes. And I think <laughs> one, of, one of Emily Hanford's articles that's really... See, the thing is, when you read the research, some of these things become clear in your head. But to get it to a wider audience, you do need journalism. And... Um, we've got a couple of really good journalists in Australia now, but I would say that most education journalists are just passing through. And so they're looking for the shiny, uh, a wheel went out on the, on the field and, and meditated for 10 minutes and our exam results have gone up kind of story. Um, whereas some will look in a bit more in depth. But Emily Hanford gave a really good, I think it was one of her articles, where she interviewed somebody who um, had... Uh, who, who wasn't look, taught to read very well and had basically themselves learnt 
um, the three queuing strategies, you know, look at the picture, try and figure out the word from context. And it was her, she called it her dirty secret, that that's how she tried to figure out what was going on in the text. And then she couldn't believe it when her, I think it was her daughter, was being taught to do that by the teachers. They were saying, well, because to her, it, it was, it was um, a poor strategy that she'd put in to mitigate um, it's what struggling readers do. And there is a, a sense with this three queuing that we are actually teaching kids. Um, sorry, I'll just, I'll just row back a bit for anyone that doesn't know what I'm on about with three queuing. So three queuing is um, a feature of, well, it's hard to know exactly what a balanced literacy program is because there are so many variations of it as I'm, I think you'd agree. But uh, many of them, it would seem, would include the strategy of three queuing, where if you don't know what a word is, rather than try and sound it out using grapheme, phoneme, correspondences, phonics, uh, you would try and guess the word from the context or from a picture or maybe the first, sound out the first letter and what would make sense there or skip over and come back and see if you can figure it out later. And those are the strategies that are often taught um, in those programs, but they're actually, they're the sorts of things that struggling readers do. So we're actually teaching kids by using those strategies to be struggling readers. Am I making any sense at all? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, I don't know what, um, much of the debate about reading um, tends to focus on decoding. We've just been talking about decoding and how you get the, how, how you turn the squiggles in the page into words. Um, there is another element. Now, I don't know what you think about the simple view of reading, but in the simple view of reading, the, there are two elements. There's decoding, there's getting the words off the page and then um, and into words, which you could recognize from your oral vocabulary. And then there is the uh, comprehension, oral comprehension. So you might be able to decode the word, um, oh, let's think, what, what, uh, terminal. But if you don't know what a terminal is, you, you still aren't going to understand uh, you, the, the, what, what the word means. So there are those two different components. Um, first of all, what do you think of the simple view of reading? And then should we be focusing more on, like the debate's a lot about decoding. Should we be focusing more on the comprehension side? Uh, if so, how should we be focusing on that? Uh, so I think the, the simple view of reading I think of is, is um, akin to the, the uh, simplest view possible of the mind that I used in Why Don't Students Like School. So you just sort of have the environment and you've got working or short-term memory and you've got long-term memory with attention in there and forgetting in there and so on. And it, uh, like that model, the simple view of reading, you can get pretty far with it. Um, you don't have to go too far before you recognize its limitations. Yeah. Um, that they're one of the most notable to me in a schooling context is that uh, there are things we want kids to do with written texts that you virtually never do with oral language. Yeah. So if, if um, the simple view says you've got decoding and then basically you've got oral language, once you know how to decode, all of the differences among kids for reading comprehension are basically listening comprehension differences. Yeah. Um, and there, there is a very high correlation between listening comprehension and reading comprehension. But we, uh, again, we start asking kids to do different things with text, to analyze text in, in ways that they wouldn't analyze what they listen to. So that's a limitation. There are also 
aspects, there are cues that are available in oral language that are not available in written language. I just thought of this the other day. I was listening to an audio book um, by Sarah Silverman, the comedian. Uh, and before that, I was on, I'm on a little bit of a jag of listening to audiobooks from Saturday Night Live performers. I listened to Colin Jost's uh, autobiography. And I was thinking how much better Silverman is at writing funny. Both of them are very good at talking funny, but yeah. there's a real difference. I think most people can appreciate this. There's a real difference between uh, comedy that's performed versus comedy that you read on the page. Uh, and an easy way to think about that is there are lots and lots of cues you can use uh, when you are speaking that are not available when you're writing. And so you need a different bag of tricks when you're writing. So that's another way that the, um, we can think of the simple view as, as sort of limited. Now, yeah, and that said, I think for those of us interested in education, it's not a bad starting point because um, that it's incomplete, but the simple view is accounting for a lot of variance. You know, yeah. a lot of what makes kids successful readers or unsuccessful readers are the, those two big pieces. And of course, there's sub processes for each one. So I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a bad place to start. Um, I think we do... I think we do have a problem in terms of uh, comprehension yeah. uh, and thinking about comprehension. And the problem is twofold. One is that decoding is sort of more obvious and it happens earlier. And so it seems scarier and more urgent when kids are not learning how to decode. Then when it gets to comprehension, there's kind of some stuff they can comprehend, some stuff they can't comprehend. There's a lot of variability. It varies by text. And so it seems a little bit less in your face and frightening. And the other thing is that, um, well, this is, I mean, by the time kids get to, you know, sort of grade six, grade seven, then it does start to seem urgent if they're uh, really having trouble. Um, and yeah, the techniques that most people have been using to try and boost comprehension have not been, not been very successful. Um, so those so, are the, the sort of reading comprehension strategies that we drill kids in. Um, they have some utility. Um, I understand that, as that that would be your position. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I think the, I think the data are inarguable. Um, there's just a mountain of data. And I've never written about this. I've wanted to. I think there's sort of a perfect storm in terms of um, how education research gets funded as to why there's so much um, uh, data supporting the use of reading comprehension strategy instruction. Um, you know, if you're a funder, you don't, you don't want, you're not gonna fund someone, you know, you're not, you, you can't pop up and say, hi, I'm Greg and I've got this cool new thing mm -hmm. that's gonna improve comprehension. And I say, well, where's your pilot data? You say, well, I don't have any yet. I mean, I, like, you know, I don't have any, I, that's why I need the money for is to yeah. collect some data. I'm not gonna give you money for that, right? If I'm a big government, I'm, big government agencies are conservative in what they fund. So it's easy to get a boost to comprehension with reading comprehension and strategy instruction. It really does work. So if I'm a researcher and I want to be in the money, what I'll do is I'll take a standard thing that I know works and I can point to lots of data and then say, I'm going to try this twist on it and I'm going to you know, do it this way instead of that way or whatever. Um, and that, that looks highly fundable. And then of course, if once it's funded, I'm going to write it up and submit it. And because journals have a bias towards accepting articles with positive, uh, 
positive outcomes, that's more likely to get published. So um, it definitely works. What, what I argued in a paper with Gail Levette is that there isn't any data indicating that sustained practice of these um, strategies does any good. Yeah. Um, so it, you definitely get the boost, but it seems to be a one-time boost. And if you, uh, if you do five, 10 sessions with kids, you'll get as big a boost as if you do 50 sessions with kids. And then when um, you've got this whole, so we've, at the moment, we've got uh, various curriculum reviews going on in, in Australia and they all, the, they all want to declutter the curriculum. And what I worry about is that similar to the problem with no child left behind is that you end up people saying, well, we've got to focus on literacy and numeracy. So we're going to, we're going to strip everything else away. The kids are going to do four hours of literacy a day. Um, everything else can come later. We're just going to, and then that's going to look like drilling them in these um, reading comprehension strategies, which are, as you say, after a few periods are quite redundant. Yeah. And then we're going to miss out on um, the clutter which yeah. is things like Content. history and science. Right. Yeah. So learning stuff. Yeah. yeah. Right. History and science and civics and drama and, and the arts and everything else. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's the, uh, you're, you're segueing very nicely into what does build comprehension more systematically, which is background knowledge is enormously important in understanding text. You, you understand text much, much better if you know even a little bit about uh, the uh, the subject matter of what the text is about. Yeah, and it but it does turning that into a package is a lot harder. So um, you you can run a, a a reading comprehension strategies experiment RCT. You know you're probably going to get a positive result. There was one attempt in the UK, I think, um, the Education Endowment Foundation ran a a knowledge rich curriculum kind of randomised control trial. And they ran it for, I forget, uh, I think it's like, it wasn't a, huge, a very long time frame. And the people that developed the knowledge-rich curriculum, they wanted to use domain-specific uh, reading assessments. So they wanted to use reading assessments yeah. in the um, area that the kids had been studying in the knowledge sure. curriculum. Yeah. Um, and not solely, but they wanted those in there. The researchers said, oh, well, that's not fair. Um, they need to use a standardized reading assessment. Well. I don't know anyone who thinks that um, giving kids knowledge about, um, you know, uh, ancient Rome is going to help them read articles about trees in the forest or whatever. The, the idea is that the two things should align and then it will boost your comprehension. But what you effectively you had, it was uh, people testing a hypothesis that no one believes in, that training in this knowledge, domain of knowledge, will transfer to reading comprehension in a a different or random domain and I think that illustrates the problem of turning something like the the uh, idea of um, knowledge boosting reading comprehension into a, a randomized control trial where you can generate this evidence um, it, 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 it's going to be quite challenging well it's it's odd because when you when you think about it if you if you say uh, well, it's not fair that um, if we teach kids about ancient Rome, then of course they're going to know how to read texts about ancient Rome better uh, than yeah. kids who haven't learned about ancient Rome. That, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's sort of the point. So yeah. if, if what you're saying is there is no abstraction called literacy. Yeah. And so what the hell do you think you're te te uh, testing with a reading test in that case? 
I mean, I would argue there, there is something called literacy in the abstract that um, kids, I mean, if nothing else, kids sense of themselves as a reader and is going to do something for motivation, it's going to do something for persistence. But just as we were talking before about critical thinking, there's almost certainly text non-specific strategies that kids deploy, things you, you know, ways that you're resourceful when you're confused about a text. Um, I, I absolutely, but I, I what, just as with critical thinking, I think we don't know very much about how to teach those in a way that really is sustained for kids. Um, people have been trying mightily to do that and have found it enormously difficult. But the idea, you know, the long-term idea of programs like the core knowledge program uh, in the States and in the UK um, is exactly, well, you know, it's going to take years and years, but um, you know, you're, you're going to know a little bit about a lot of things that matter in schooling context. And so we're going to build up, we're going to build up the knowledge that you need to success to succeed um, uh, in a schooling context. Yeah. And I think, um, one of the aspects of it that is often missed tools essentially at the moment um and i make this point i've i've just um i've got a book coming out in um february probably on explicit power explicit teaching and direct instruction and i make the point about how you choose this curriculum content now um i know um edie hirsch has spoken about i think he used the you know he did an analysis or something of what, what you need to know to be able to read the new york times and and, I, and that's one way of looking at it. And then, then you also, you need to think, well, actually, we need to have a, a curriculum that speaks to different people in the community. We can't have one that's just entirely empirical in this way. But at the moment, we don't do any of that. We, essentially, the enacted curriculum is whatever the teachers decide it is. And so that seems like the least fair. Like, I think we need, one of the things that I've, I've seen Hirsch argue is that kids some of the most disadvantaged kids are the ones that move school the most and they're the ones that are likely to get a disjointed curriculum and if we could just coordinate across schools so that at least within uh, a reasonable geographic area they're teaching the same sequence of curriculum then as, as school as kids move around they can pick up yeah. where they left off but we don't do that like you could it's it's a largely it particularly in like english I think you call it English language arts curriculum. It's it's always defined in the abstract. So the particular text or the particular context are, are largely absent. So you could end up doing the same thing several times if you moved around, you could not doing it at all. But in order to coordinate it across um, the, that geographical area, that state, that, that yeah. nation or whatever, you need to have some way of resolving what the curriculum should be and right. that's an essentially political question. It's not exactly. one that you can address scientifically, but no one wants to do it. Like politicians want to be in favor of literacy and numeracy and all that sort of business. They don't want to, they don't want to get into these messy debates as to, uh, you know, which authors we, we should include, which, um, which, which, thing, which aspects of history we should focus on. And yeah. so that gets left to individual teachers. I don't know. I've, um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on how we could bridge some of that, th those issues. Yeah, I think your, I think your analysis is uh, exactly right. And I, I, you know, I think it, 
um, these are difficult conversations to have. And people are, you know, some people are going to be, probably everyone's going to be disappointed to some yeah. extent. And that's why nobody who's in charge of this wants to talk about it at all. But what they're, what they also don't want to talk about is doing nothing, which is what we do now, is also a choice. Yeah. And the choice that we're, that we're taking is leaving kids with disjointed curricula and kids who move more, suffer more, as you, as you alluded to. And it is the disadvantaged kids who statistically move more. I don't think there's a solution to this. I'll tell you, I'm not much of a school choice person. But to me, this is probably the strongest argument for school choice. It's like, you know what, Greg, you should be able to raise your kids the way you want to raise your kids. And I should be able to raise my kids the way I want to raise my kids. And so instead of having a fight about how, you know, the history of Australia is going to be represented or how math is going to be taught or whatever, we should be able to vote with our feet and go to the school that, that, uh, that means something to us and that uh, accords with the way we want to raise our kids. That to me, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's hard for me to disagree with that, though there are, you know, there are other arguments, compelling arguments against school choice as well. Look, school choice is, is one of these things where I've changed my mind over time. I, um, I remember writing a blog post very early on saying, what we, we just need a good uh, education minister to come in who understands education to sweep away some of this nonsense and start improving the public schools. All this creating new ways of organizing schools it's tinkering around the edges it's systems it's not um addressing the core issue however in the intervening time two things have happened i've lost my faith that any um minister or secretary of state or whatever could come in and do that yeah. uh, because they they just wouldn't know what levers to pull i mean uh, and there's a huge bureaucracy already in place that's invested in the status quo um so i'm not sure that they could do that um and that this is why now i'm much more convinced that this has got to be something that teachers have, are going to have to grapple with from the grassroots but the other thing is i've seen the effects of um what's happened in in some places not all charter schools are great not all charter schools are places i would want to send my kids not all academies in the uk are great or places i'd want to send my kids but what they've done is they've created a diversity of school type, which wasn't previously there in the um, government system. And that's enabled some schools to provide a proof of principle, like, look, you could run a school this way and it might be more effective. And schools like Michaela in London, which um, people probably know more about because they're quite um, happy to talk about the, what they do and they're quite happy to host visitors. It's hard when you've got a, an extant school like that to mm -hmm. argue that the things that that school does that won't work because there's, there's a building and there's kids and it's happening. So, <laughs> they are, right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's a tricky one, though, because there are lots of arguments against it, too, and, um, you know, who falls through the cracks. and who, uh, it, it, It's a tricky one, but I, I'm not sure... I, I'm not sure there's another way of influencing the system as a whole. I'm not sure either. And I mean, this is the kind of, this is why I, I usually just uh, beg off and say, well, you know, I'm a psychologist. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't do the political angle of things, but, you know, we're here schmoozing. And so I'm uh, speculating a little bit. But yeah, I usually uh, stay out of that sandbox. Yeah. Um, look, Dan, it's been an absolute 
pleasure to talk to you. Um, I, I feel very lucky um, to uh, have been able to persuade you to come on the podcast. At some point in the future, um, if you are so inclined, it would be good to have you back because oh, we've only just scratched the surface today and I'm sure there's plenty more stuff we could talk about. So thank you very much for, 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 for being on the podcast um, and um, hopefully we'll speak again soon. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. Enjoyed it. Cheers. Thank you.